Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. You are listening to 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in for an hour of science. We are very excited about uh, this week because it's just me and Chris KP. We got rid of everyone else. Good morning, Chris KP. How are you doing? I'm good, man. I'm trying to keep it together, trying not to let my excitement uh, overtake. <laughs> you're my, doing a good job. My of, uh, professionalism. You're doing a good job of not indicating <laughs> that you're excited to me whatsoever. <laughs> Thank yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, hey, I wanted to uh, start off today with some news. We've got a couple of guests on the show today a little bit later. One's coming in from Perth. One's coming in from Queensland. They're all over the world. Wow. Well, well this is Australia, Australia anyway. Um, <laughs> But uh, that'll be a lot of fun. But I thought we'd start off with a bit of news uh, between the two of us. And I was going to ask you, do you remember the famous scene from the film Caddyshack with the Polly Waffle in the pool? Oh, very, very vividly, yes. So just for for those of you who uh, weren't born in the 70s or (laughs) very early 80s, uh, who don't remember having seen this film with Bill Murray, classic film, Mm. there was a scene where someone accidentally dropped a Polly Waffle bar into a pool while a pool party was happening. Mm. And there was some Jaws music. Uh, there was some concern that this bar was something other than a food item. And everyone scrambled out of the pool very, very rapidly. Did, did you feel the need to get out of the pool? I mean, would you get out of a pool if you saw something like that, Chris Kepi? I reckon I would. I reckon I would. Um, and why? Well, if I, if I didn't know it was a polywaffle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, assuming you don't know it's yeah, a polywaffle. I, yeah. I, think I, I think I would just be concerned of it. I don't think it would be rational. It's not like I would go through a, you know, a, a, yes. an algorithm of there is an item which may cause A, B, C, or D mm, and whatever. Mm. But just the general idea that I'd be that close to raw sewage yeah, um, yeah. is unsettling. It's certainly not the reason I would be in the pool in the first place. Right, right. You'd assume the pool was clean. Yeah. yeah. So, and this brings up for me an interesting uh, point of, uh, I guess, a public health announcement for people. Mm-hmm. Uh, with regards to the floodwaters that are around many parts of Australia. Oh, dear. There are many polywaffles <laughs> in these floodwaters. Not all human. I, I feel like I feel like we should put in a warning here that they're not actually polywaffles either, because no, that's a terrible not. mistake. Please don't <laughs> make that mistake. They are not polywaffles, uh, but uh, it may be advisable to avoid this water, unless, of course, you are being rescued by some, you know, very much stronger than me, CFA or other mm. emergency services workers who are scrambling to get you into boats or whatever else, and and. You know, away from these dangerous areas. So we should just recap the reasons for not getting in this water. One is if you have any cuts on your body mm. at all. Yeah. And there have been any polywaffle sightings. Yeah. Or even not sightings. Even not sightings. They can be submerged. Oh, yes, Um, they can. You know, this happens. Then the chance of a serious infection Mm. is, you know, is pretty damn high, actually. Mm. And and if you're in in, um, a disaster area, a flood-prone area, and you happen to get such an infection, even if it wasn't especially serious at the point of getting it, the medical services of these areas, they're quite stretched, too. Yeah, the, the likelihood that someone's going to come rushing to you to deal with yeah. your thing—it's it's hard for them. They've yeah. got other things to do. So yeah, yeah, very wise. So and and a further recap of other things that, of course, are in these waters at the time is uh, we we aren't the only living things that don't like this shit. And so I, I'm not talking about the polywaffle there. I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm talking again about the water and the floods. You know, for me, and you know what I'm terrified of: spiders. Yes, sure. They're coming out. Mm. Uh, rats, mice, all sorts of vermin, mm. snakes. Yeah. Lions, tigers, and bears. <laughs> oh, my. Um, but basically, it's a not a good environment. And so, if at all possible, keep damn clear of it. I think we forget, because it's come from the sky. Yes. But it's mixed with stuff that, you know, we do. And that's, that's an interesting point, because, it's yeah. the, I mean, you would... I, I hadn't really thought about it like that, because all the warnings you get from the authorities, and they're very uh, they're, they're salient, mm. uh, are about the water itself. Yeah. Yep. You know, not, which, not the chemical, which is valid. the physical nature of it. Yep. You know that there are there, yes, it moves quickly. There are currents you can't see, etc. And and you are nowhere. You and your car are nowhere near as good at moving through yep. it as you think you are. 
Yep. So that's good advice. But you're spot on, though. Once you go down to the chemical and biological, yeah, yeah. there's a whole other dimension yeah. of, uh, of discomfort and horror. And it's not that I don't love seeing a TikTok video of someone wading through this polywaffle-infested water. Um, it can be fun to watch. But the whole time I'm watching it, I'm thinking, you have a number of openings to your body right now that are submerged in this, and that is dangerous, and you need to be more careful. Do you know, what would, you know what would do the world of good for the message, I reckon, just because it would catch attention? Imagine a newsreader, if you will, in waders, and I'm, this is an image that you've seen, standing there in the floodwater giving their yeah. message imagine if someone off camera just put a dozen or so polywaffles to float past them <laughs> that that would be enough for people yeah. to go oh god what are you doing well, yeah so department of health message to you here's <laughs> the option one is the polywaffle <laughs> option from chris kp option two for me and this is for the general media this is going to add to the drama of the reporting mm. but as you pull these people out of the water to safety i mean that's that's the drama right the, mm. the helicopter rescue whatever that's the drama they love to promote in addition to that i want a scene that looks a bit like the film outbreak where you mm. then hose them down and sure. sanitise them because they've been in this water. Yeah, and I think nice. that adds to the drama, but it also puts out a good public health message that this stuff is dirty, it's filthy, and it can lead to all sorts of um, problems with your health. So mm. maybe we could get the two going. If anyone, anyone from the you know, mainstream media are listening, I know they listen to the show religiously. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Uh, can we get that drama going? Because I think that would be a good health message just to indicate to people don't do it. I'm fine with that. Yeah. Now, one more thing about uh, the water. Mm. You know, I, 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 I'm not sure if this phrase was actually said, but I think when something like, we will build a wall and the residents will pay for it uh, later. Yeah. Um, it disturbs me, mm. disturbs me greatly that I haven't heard from a lot of hydrologists in the last few days saying, we modelled this. And it wasn't a good idea at the time. Interesting. So, folks, if you, if you haven't been keeping up to date there, uh, the Flemington Racecourse has yeah. a very, very long – I think it's about a three-kilometre-long wall around it, or as I like to say, around a part of the Maribyrnong floodplain. I grew yeah. up in the western yeah. suburbs. So this was, you know, this is where I you know, disposed of a couple of cars down there. Um, no. But uh, – <laughs> <laughs> I knew people who did, but yeah. no, uh, played a lot of cricket down there, mm. you know, on that floodplain. But that's part of the floodplain. And if you block off part of a, a floodplain for a river, you know, I mean, I'm not sure I'm being Einstein saying this, but the water's got to go somewhere else. That's physics. That's physics. Yeah. Or hydrology. Well, correct. And yes. uh, and I think uh, in the coming weeks and months, we're going to learn that uh, I suspect that the building of this wall, this or damming, you might yes. say, of of the race course has caused significant problems for other people in the area, which is very unfortunate. It's it's funny because I actually when I first when I first saw I saw a photograph uh, about mm. and a little bit a tiny bit of history. My immediate thought was, oh, that's just selfish. Mm. It's just it's mm. so self centered. Yeah, yeah, and it kind of is. Um, but then you know, it took me a couple of paragraphs reading before I went. Hang on a second, it's more than selfish. It's actually, it's if you go beyond selfish, you get to actually harming others. Yeah, yeah. for yeah. you, yeah. and that's where we're at. And I did wonder what was the. I mean, this is a significant piece of infrastructure. What was the? What was the council doing? I mean, because yeah. I know what it's like to try and get stuff passed to council. Well, actually, I can tell you there, the councils, I believe, were objecting to it. Okay, uh, it was the state government that approved it at the time, and unfortunately, uh, the calls from residents and councils to not build this mm. wall went um, on deaf ears. So, look, it's a it's a big problem. Uh, it's a massive cleanup. A lot of people have been tragically affected by this, but mm. it is a floodplain. It is going to flood. This mm. is this is going to happen. It may happen more in the future. It's so hard yes. to tell. Um, but I think we need to we need to hear from some hydrologists about just what the dynamics around the area look like because, mm. as I say, we will build a wall. Yeah. I've heard that phrase before. And the residents will pay for it doesn't, in the future. It doesn't, doesn't, it doesn't well, sound does it? good. It no, doesn't sound no. good. Anyway, uh, other news in science. Uh, look, I, I uh, saw a story uh, about bumblebees, and it reminded me of my childhood, uh, not mm. because I was ever a bumblebee. Stung? Uh, not stung. Well, I have been stung, but no, that wasn't it. No, it was that when when I was uh, – when my sisters and I were sort of choosing, like you were getting ice cream and you had to choose you know, all those 20 flavours or whatever. One of the techniques – I don't know where we got this from. One of the techniques we would use to help us choose was to go, okay, well – there's rum and raisin and there's strawberry. Which of those two would I like first? I go, oh, I think I strawberry. Okay, then we okay. go to the, nat- the winner of that. So strawberry versus yeah. vanilla and vanilla versus pistachio. And you go through all the one by, you know, one by one, two by two until you got a winner. And that was the one you'd go for. Right. I don't know if that stands up to logic, but it seemed very solid at the time. It was, a very cu- <laughs> yeah. it was quite a peaceful thing to go, I've got a decision yep. now. And it's based on some logic. I haven't just made it up. Yeah. Um, uh, 
But of course, you know, if I was to have that ice cream that I finally chose and then have another one and then the next day have another one and then another one, I would still have some memory of all of the ice creams. Turns out that bumblebees aren't the same. So the experiment uh, that, uh, that I'm referring to was done recently where they basically said, OK, bumblebees, here's two fake flowers. They're basically just a plastic rectangle with some nectar in it with different levels of sweetness. So the bumblebee would be able to, it would taste one and drink some of that and then taste the next one and have some of that, and it would remember which one was sweeter. It would get back to the sweeter one. Then, if they expose the bumblebee to, so let, let's call those first two one and two. Mm. Later on, they expose the bumblebee to flowers three and four, which are totally different, but mm. equally had different l- levels of sweetness. And again, the bumblebee would choose one or the other, quite clearly and quite easily. But then if they put together a pair the bumblebee had not seen, so for example, two and three, that had never been paired previously, okay. bumblebee would start again. No memory of which oh. of these was comparatively more or less sweet, even though that was a, a thing that was measurable and, hmm. and, and experienced by the bee. So they don't have the same level of comparative memory we do. Wow. Which makes you think, wow, when your whole life depends upon getting nutrients in from these things, how have yeah. you not evolved to, to remember yeah, you've only got so much resources, so much nourishment out there for you. And the research suggests, well, because they don't care, ultimately, because if they've got the choice in front of them, sure, they might start with the sweeter. But the bottom line is, nectar is nectar. Yeah, they don't <laughs> and, care. And they'll find it, and that's the most important thing. But, yeah, so their memory is quite different to ours because they can compare, but they don't retain the comparative memory across groups for any length of time that matters. Interesting. It we learn interesting. something new about these uh, little guys every day, don't we, the... Bees and bumblebees generally are awesome. They're much more interesting than we are. Uh, Now, we did receive a a message in uh, regards to the polywaffle story. Polywaffles are an Australian-only chocolate bar. Really? I thought they were a bit wider than that. But anyway, uh, that could well be true. Caddyshack wasn't made or or set in Australia. No, but was it a polywaffle? I feel like it was. I feel like it was, but maybe that was just our Australian interpretation of what looked like a polywaffle. could have (laughs) been something else. It's certainly become part of Australian culture that it was. (laughs) Yeah, I think we've been believing it for three decades. So, uh, look, that's... uh, Okay, it's kind of neither here nor there, really, is it? It's good to know, though. It's good to know. know. I haven't had a polywaffle for probably decades, but they're pretty good from memory. Yeah. Pretty good. Uh, anyway. uh, well, folks, we're going to take a, a break for a few station announcements. And uh, when we come back, we'll be speaking, hopefully, on the line to Dr. Megan Lee, who is from Bond University, uh, which is up north, if you didn't know that. And we're going to be talking about the way in which um, students affect lecturers and the way in which teaching is done in universities with the, um, you know, the assessments. Have you had some of these assessments yeah, done yeah. on you, Chris? What did you get, like three? Uh, Maybe. Three out of five? <laughs> um, you know, it can be you – know, I, I remember getting a lot of comments about my shirts. <laughs> and I still remember it still hurts. You know, it was like 20 years ago. There weren't good comments then. Oh, no. Oh. No, they weren't. No. Oh, there was, there was a couple, but most of them were not. Um, overly flattering. It's a very interesting concept. Yeah, so I wasn't sure what that had to do with first-year physics, but um, suffice it to say, there were some issues, uh, which I tried to fix, but um, the fixes, it just got worse. Oh, I, I think no, your shirts are lovely. Thanks, mate. <laughs> <laughs> All right, folks, uh, we'll be back in just a few minutes with our first guest for today. Triple R. Welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 R. On the line with us now is Dr. Megan Lee. Megan is a senior teaching fellow in psychology in the Faculty of Society and Design at Bond University. Welcome to the show, Megan. Thank you for having me, Dr. Shane. It's great to talk to you now. We bumped into each other, I think, on social media because you were presenting some of your results on the different I suppose, drivers for occupational stress in Australian or Australasian universities. Are you telling me that academics are stressed in Australian universities? This is the first I'm hearing of this. Uh, Yes, it's something uh, in collaboration with uh, academics at Southern Cross University. We were really interested in understanding what the stress levels were of university lecturers and tutors in Australia and New Zealand. Yeah, and with with regards to that, are we sort of in the problem range here? I mean, your your background, I think, is psychology. Like, is this something that's causing very significant problems with health, or is it uh, below that at this point? Yeah, so on top of all the problems that we've been having with COVID across the world, Australian academics were uh, actually way highly stressed before 
before the COVID epidemic mm. even um, happened. So we think that the reasons for this, and when we dived into the literature and had a look at what these stress levels were um, occurring for, it was mainly because of balancing a very um, tight academic workload, teaching um, face-to-face, and then also uh, bringing in online teaching, uh, but also um, doing research work out outside of, of these times. Um, the workforce became very casualised. We got a lot of casual lecturers and tutors in. It was quite difficult to get uh, full-time work in Australian universities at the time, which was causing stress from um, lack of job security and a new managerialism <laughs> of mm. uh, system. And students became consumers rather than um, students, <laughs> which was quite difficult um, as well. Yeah. So I, I think it's, it's one of those things where I suppose universities – have changed so much in the last two decades. I mean, they really have transformed in their style. I mean, I I haven't been in one now for, you know, almost 18 months. And, you know, when I left, the way I would describe it compared to the way I would have described it 20 years ago, it was just chalk and cheese. In in terms of the, the stresses, though, I know one of the things you've been – looking at in particular is these quality of teaching evaluations that uh, everyone gets to do. And, uh, you know, Chris KP and I were just talking about this before uh, you came online and, you know, Chris would get very bad uh, evaluations relating to his clothing, um, which, uh, well, that might have been me. <laughs> almost certainly. Uh, yeah, almost certainly me. Um, but it, it's interesting, like, um, I, I mean, I'm not sure how, how, how sort of evidence-based this is, but I, I, I know from many um, female colleagues that this was also a lot worse for them in the sorts of commentary they would get relative to mm. my male colleagues. Is that what you're seeing when you look at that? Yeah, so what was interesting about the review that we did of the literature was that we didn't actually find any of the papers that really talked about this problem. But we mm. knew from like anecdotal evidence from our friends in our universities, um, teaching staff everywhere, we were talking about it in the corridors, but it wasn't being shown in the literature. So we were really interested in that. Um, and you are completely right. Um, every year, Australian academics, lecturers and tutors get evaluated by students. At the end of every um, study period or teaching period, we get uh, we send out anonymous student surveys for the students to evaluate the, the teaching and the unit performance. Now, we really like these as... Um, Academics, because when they're constructive, they can really help us um, improve our teaching performance, improve things in the unit that the students may not like or aren't working. So they're actually a really good thing. But the problem with them is that we get a lot of non-constructive narrative comments in there mm. <laughs> that the students can give when they're unhappy with potentially not doing well in the unit. And this may not always be the teacher's fault yep. so sometimes and it's usually skewed to the students who are quite unhappy because maybe they didn't prepare they didn't come to class they didn't read the textbook they didn't submit their assessment and then uh they take that out in the on their teachers in the student feedback surveys at the end of the study period um and as you say uh female academics tend to get it worse um academics who have an accent um, get it worse, uh, those who are in the LGBTIQ community or seem to be in the LGBTIQ community, mm-hmm. um, yes, they get it a little worse than your standard white male professor. <laughs> yeah, I was the standard white male professor with bad dress sense, so I didn't get it too bad compared to my colleagues. Chris? I don't think you need to add with bad dress sense. That was assumed uh, at that point, that's, <laughs> yeah. but that's okay. Um, look, I, th- I think I have two questions, Megan. Uh, one is, to what extent is there... So- um, uh, is there agreement or alignment or standards um, of of how these processes are run across universities? Is there a sense of is there any level of rigor about um, how the information is gathered, how the data is assessed, etc.? Or is it everybody has their own version of it? But the other question, which I think is related um, to your point about students who might be trying to get something off their chest, they're trying to you know um, express a disappointment or a dissatisfaction. What other avenues do they have uh, to do that? No matter how um, reasonable or unreasonable it might be. Yeah, that's a really good question and they do tie into each other so um, that is quite good. 
Um, the thing that we find is that students are not qualified or trained to give constructive mm. evaluation of teaching or unit performance. That's the first thing. So we don't train them how to do it. Um, the other thing that's problematic is that job security, tenure, promotion and job interviews for academics who are in the field are all tied to these feedback scores that we get. So we get a score as well as a, nar- a narrative comment from the students about why they gave that score. And the first thing that's always asked when you go for a job interview or a promotion or anything like that is, what's your average student feedback score? Mm, like, wow. well, and if any statistician knows that when you're trying to, to keep your whole teaching stuff above the average on feedback scores, now mm. the way that averages work, <laughs> yep. that's not quite possible. <laughs> so, <laughs> and these um, student feedback surveys are not compulsory. So students who are unhappy tend to be the ones who do them and students mm. who are kind of, yeah, it was all right and happy, they don't tend to do them. So um, stat- statistically, that's also a problem. <laughs> um, yes, and students, as you said, don't have other avenues to make these complaints that they may have about all their, if they're unhappy. So this yeah. is their only avenue to do so, mm. yeah. usually. It's, and. I I never did this as a lecturer, but I, I always knew that if I just gave a little bit more information about what was on the exam, those quality of teaching scores probably would have gone up for me. Do we do we see that kind of effect coming through the system, especially as you say, given the you know really serious issues like promotions and contracts and so forth depend partly on good scores. I mean, surely people would be tempted to game that system a little bit. Yeah, there is actually a really good book written. I think it's not by an Australian academic, but by someone in the States called Playing the SET Game or Playing the Student Evaluation of Teaching Game, where academics um, explain the things that they do to try and avoid student uh, feedback skills being too low. Um, there's one. There was one study that's been published about an academic that gives their students cookies every time the student feedback scores open and always get <laughs> higher higher student feedback scores. Um, it's, it can be a bit of a popularity contest. So teachers that are friendly and happy and really outgoing and but maybe a little less strict <laughs> Hello. when it comes oh. to grading are <laughs> yep. uh, better than uh, academics that are considered a little bit tougher in grading but this this can lead to grade inflation and you've always got in the back of your mind like in every interaction that you have with every student how is this could this impact my teaching feedback scores when you're grading you're like oh if i grade too harshly are my teaching feedback scores going to be impacted and when you think about my uh, field which is psychology if we are doing that across the cohort of students and and passing students because we're afraid to fail them, are we then potentially sending out unqualified students into the field who are going to then be your psychologist and could do something dangerous or Mm. say something dangerous that could have very severe consequences? Yeah. I mean, I have to say, when you say that, I instantly start thinking about, you know, my surgeon and think, what does that version of that look like? You know, my psychologist might piss me off and, you know, put me back a little bit, but, you know, I don't want someone cutting me open and, and getting that wrong. I think it's it's an interesting scenario, isn't though, when, as Chris KP was saying, you know, students need a forum to, to try and provide information back. Most of us have been through some, you know, tragically bad lecturers over the years when we were at university, and I, I suspect some still do, because... To be fair to them, they're not taught to teach and they're not taught to communicate effectively as baselines in the university sector. So that is a inherent flaw from the get-go. And I always found, like when I was teaching, the thing that seemed to be missing that I tried to put there for the students most was clear expectations of what they would get in any given lecture or the program overall. So there were no, no real surprises, maybe hard or not as hard as they expected, but you know they knew what was coming each day and they knew what was going to be there. So I think there, there are ways where the evaluations come out a bit more positive with things like that, which are actually what you would like. You would like that communication to be more effective for students. You would like them to be more engaged with what's going on. But as you say, that, that gaming of the system in other ways 
especially how much universities are focused around money from students, especially international students and so forth these days, is really problematic. So, Megan, in, in your view, what what is the sort of solution to this? Or is it something we're sort of a long way from? I mean, uh, especially, you know, like as, as a person from psychology, you know, we, we've got essentially both the psychology of the students and the academics mm. to deal with in, 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 you know, concert here. And we have to do that in a way that should improve lectures from year to year without, you know, destroying the souls of those teaching. But at the same time, give students the ability to provide valuable feedback. So, I mean, any ideas on what we should do? Sure. And this is the question that comes out of all of our research is that we're at that point now where we know what the problem is, but we are kind of trying to find what the solution is. And we've, I've asked students myself, and we are currently doing focus group studies with students, asking them what they think the solution is. Mm. Now, we know that making it non-anonymous is not going to work because students, if they know that they could be identified, are not going to give correct, honest feedback are probably going to inflate the scores upwards so it goes the other way. Mm. And then they're not likely to give you a bad score if they know that you're potentially going to teach them again. So that's not a, a possibility. Making it compulsory is also not really going to work because when we think about all of the things that ethically is wrong with doing that and forcing people to do this feedback, that's also not um, going to work. So... We are currently looking and asking students about what they think, and they're coming up with some really good ideas um, around potentially using uh, AI, artificial intelligence, to like pinpoint when swear words or defamatory language or racist or gender-biased language comes up and getting a little warning saying, if you send this, you could be then non-anonymized. Mm. So students came up with those ideas. Um, they also talked about redacting the um, defamatory language, which universities don't do currently, yeah. apart from two universities that I know in Australia that do it. Um, all the rest of the Australian universities don't. So that means redacting the, um, the comments by removing anything that is considered to be defamatory, racist, yeah. gender bias, that sort of thing, um, from the and removing those scores as well. Um, but I think it's a really exciting um, avenue that we can be looking at. What do you think, Dr. Shane? What is your solution to uh, this Look, it's, it's a tough one I've thought about in various areas, also for reporting of um, you know, sexual harassment and other things. I mean, my, my view actually is that uh, I, I, would, I would be open to the idea of a delayed response. So uh, I wouldn't care so much about the being anonymized, um, but I would be very favorable about the responses being delayed for, say, three years so that those providing feedback are out of the power range of the individuals involved in the teaching. Still adding some of those removal of defamatory commentary and so forth, get that stuff out of the system. But um, as soon as you as soon as you take people out of the power power range of the individuals involved, all of a sudden, you know, we've seen this in international areas in around reporting of sexual assault and so forth in universities, and that all of a sudden things change. So, um, you know, you know. Pop, pop a little uh, time capsule of student feedback in the in the ground outside the the law courts there or whatever at every university, and you dig it up in three years and tell the lecturers how they did. Um, then you know it's a it's a very different story, I think. But anyway, that's that's my view. Megan, thanks so much for talking to us today. It's been great um, hearing about your research, and um, we'll keep bumping into each other, no doubt, on Twitter and <laughs> and keep on this because this is something that's going the wrong way, and we all I think know it's going the wrong way at the moment. So we we need to keep on top of it. Great to chat. Thank you so much, Dr. Shane. Appreciate it. Folks, that's Dr. Megan Lee, a senior teaching fellow in psychology at Bond University. We're going to take a break for some station announcements and we'll be back with our second guest talking about pediatric brain cancer. Triple R. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Triple R, Einstein at GoGo Time. It's an hour of science. On the line with us now, all the way from Perth, is Dr. Jessica Buck, a forest research fellow from Telethon Kids Institute and the University of Western Australia. Good morning, Jess. How are you going? Good morning. Thanks very much for having me. It's great to have you on the show. Sorry to get you up so early. Uh, was it like uh, 8.30? 9.30? 
830. 8.30. 8.30. Oh, jeez. Um, I can't keep up with the 27 time zones that Australia has. It's, um, it's tough. Yeah. Now, it is quite a lot. Yeah. Now, you work in a super interesting area. I mean, it's, it's, it's a tough one, but it's incredibly important, and that is um, brain cancer, but with a particular emphasis on paediatrics. Give us a bit of a flavour of where we are with brain cancer at the moment, um, especially in kids and treatment. Um, we, you know, we hear about cancer a lot, but brain, brain cancer is specifically problematic. And um, yeah, give us give us a, a few highlights on, on where we are. Well, I'm not sure if you can call it highlights, but yeah. brain cancer actually kills more Australian kids than any other disease, right. which is quite terrifying. There's around about 180 kids in Australia that going to be diagnosed with brain cancer this year and the reality is that we don't have any good treatments for them Mm. treatments for brain cancer haven't really changed in the last 30 years we haven't had any new breakthroughs or advances and so what happens is kids are stuck getting treated with the same old treatments of surgery chemotherapy and radiation therapy and these can be really really harsh for kids Mm. And in terms of those three, so when we, we talk about surgery, we're talking about cutting out large or, you know, sizable um, cancers that are essentially tumours in the brain. We, we talk about chemotherapy, which is, and, and you're going to have to explain to me how this even gets across the blood-brain barrier, but, you know, we're talking about very toxic chemicals that, um, you know, kill parts of these tumours and or other parts of the brain, you know. And then radiation therapy, which is literally, you know, putting radiation and killing the surrounding tissue and trying to get to the tumour first. Is that, is that That's the big three, right? Yeah, definitely. And so you can imagine how these things are really damaging to the normal brain that's around the tumour. And so for our kids, if they do pull through, if they do make it, they end up with really awful long-term side effects and they can end up with, you know, quite severe disabilities that are caused by their treatment. Yeah. Is is that like that really um, problematic outcome, is that primarily because their brains are still developing at that point or is it just the non-specificity of the damage done um, by the treatments? It's a little bit of both. So because kids' brains are developing and growing, they're really susceptible to radiation therapy. And for treatment for cancers like um, medulloblastoma, which is the most common brain tumour, and that's the one that I primarily work on, Mm -hmm. We have to actually irradiate the entire brain, not just the area around the tumour, because otherwise the cancer cells, they do spread to other areas in the brain and even down the spinal cord. Wow. So you have to actually irradiate a huge amount of the those poor kids. Yeah. And also the chemotherapy is really damaging. Some of the chemotherapies actually cause hearing loss, as well as your usual side effects like, you know, nausea and hair loss and all those kind of things. Yeah. Now, just in terms of your your work, um, you're working on sort of targeting the, the sort of DNA damage response that happens during these therapies. Tell us a bit about that. How does that work? Sure. So the way that uh, our treatments kill cancer cells is they actually damage the DNA inside those cancer cells because cancer cells are more susceptible to that damage than mm-hmm. the rest of the body. And so what we're trying to do is make that damage more effective. So when, for instance, a child receives radiotherapy, the DNA is damaged, but then the cells, the cancer cells actually try and repair that damage. Okay. So what we're looking at doing is adding in some extra drugs that will stop the cancer cells from repairing their DNA damage, which will make them more likely to die. Now, we want to have kind of two main outcomes from this. Firstly, we definitely want to make you know, a combination treatment that will mean that more kids can survive their cancer. But we also want to be really conscious when we do that, that we don't want to make these devastating lifelong side effects worse. Mm. So we need to be really careful about how we design our treatments so that they're both more effective and less toxic for these kids. Yeah, interesting. And what's the situation at the moment with, I know in South Australia they're building the new Bragg Centre and soon they'll have proton therapy and, you know, for 
people out there uh, who are not aware of what this is, it's a it's a new type of radiotherapy that uses individual protons. So you fire protons into the body and you can direct them to much smaller locations. I remember when I was doing my physics degree, we were using it to make optical devices in, in glass, in silica, and you could make them incredibly small, you know, like something like a 50th of the the size of a human hair is this you think do you think this will be transformative with the way in which kids are treated with that greater specificity with these new technologies or are we we still going to see the same problems because of all the treatments put together i think that proton therapy has a lot of potential and it's going to be really really useful for some of the brain tumors where we don't have to irradiate the whole brain where we can Mm. just focus on the tumor because that will mean with proton therapy you can spare a lot more of the normal tissue. And so that's going to really help with the side effects. Mm. Uh, It's also really important that when we design these new treatments, we need to design them so that they're compatible with proton therapy. So, for instance, if, you know, the drug that we're working on, if it only works with normal radiotherapy but not protons, we really need to test that in the lab before these things go to clinical trial so that kids can have the best chance of getting the best treatments. Yeah. In in terms of the the funding, I mean, one of the things that we know, you know, is that cancer across the board gets pretty good funding, you know, in Australia, I think as as in relation to especially many other diseases, especially a lot of the sort of more rare diseases, although, you know, when you add all the rare diseases together, they're not so rare amongst our population. How How is it with, in particular, paediatric brain research? Is it a good is it a good funding space? Is it well resourced, or are we sort of behind a bit there by international standards? Look, medical research in Australia, in general, is ridiculously underfunded. So we're all competing for a tiny slice mm. of the pie that is in nowhere, no way, shape, or form big enough to feed everybody. Yep. Where paediatric cancer does well, and I'm not sure if this is a good thing is that there's so many charities that have been set up by families who've lost children to brain cancer or have children who survive but with, you know, side effects and they want to make things better for other families. And so our lab, like a lot of other paediatric brain cancer labs, we rely, her- um, we rely heavily on charity funding. And so we are able to do our research through that way, but it would be fantastic if there was more health and medical research funding in general. Yeah, I think uh, here, here it's something that should happen, and especially in the area of brain cancer, as you say, the long-term effects of the treatment can be devastating to, to kids and families, and that's not something we can fix later. Um, you know, once we do damage to the brain, it's done, and the brain cannot, you know, correct for some of that systematic damage that we do across the board. So, Jess, good luck with the ongoing work. Um, maybe, you know, I run one of these kids' cancer charities, so maybe next time I'm in Perth, we'll come and have a look at the lab. That'd be cool to see what you guys do. But thanks so much for chatting to us on Einstein and Gogo today, and, and uh, we look forward to hearing some of these good results coming out about the how to deal with some of this DNA damage and, and working with the immune system. So thanks so much. No worries. Look forward to seeing you if you're ever in Perth. Excellent. Folks, that was Dr. Jessica Buck from uh, the Telethon Kids Institute and the University of Western Australia. We're going to take some time for some music, and when we come back, uh, Chris KP and I will be talking about some interesting things. Triple R. Uh, we're back, folks. It's uh, the, I was going to say the remaining 15 minutes of Einstein and Gogo. Liv's in here doing their Twitter feed. Mm. She's uh, chilling out. you got a microphone today, Liv. What's going on? I do, but I pushed it very far away from me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so good people who aren't able to see, which is most people, Liv had to do a handstand just to use the microphone. Yeah, thing. yeah, yeah. That's, uh, but she's a very healthy and very flexible person <laughs> compared to me and Chris KP. Yeah, the bar's not real high. Oh, we're, we're walking in with frames these days because we've been in the show too long. Uh, anyway, I just wanted to mention something that uh, Dr. Lauren sent me this morning, actually, which I thought would be a good story. Uh, before I hand over to you, Chris Cappy, did, did you know that mice in the lab, mm. and, you know, let's just park the issue of mice being used for experimentation for a moment. Mm. We can do a whole other show on that. Mm. I've done about 20 of them over the last 30 years. But did you know that mice during the lab, are, depending on who handles them, behave differently? And by that, I mean men and women. Oh, I didn't know there was a, a clear gender divide. Okay. Yes. Uh, here's the surprise. Mm. They're more fearful when they're held by men or handled so by am men. I. 
<laughs> as, a, as a sloppy rule of thumb. Anyway, it's probably not a big surprise that, that might be the case. Um, they can presumably pick up on pheromones and various things and work out who's who. And in fact, they can they can work it out even just from pieces of clothing and so forth. So it doesn't have to be. So some of these experiments uh, that are done to determine this don't need you or me to be in the room. It can just be our clothes, and they pick up that we're male and whatever, wow. and they're more fearful. And there's been some questions as to whether or not that changes their behaviour for experiments and so forth. Sure. Interesting. Okay. Let's park that. Um, over at the University of Maryland School of Medicine, though, they've been looking at the antidepressant effects of the use of ketamine. Mm. And what they have found in these early experiments, in fairly early stuff, but it's, um, it's been um, uh, published in Nature Neuroscience, so it's not, you know, it's sort of uh, mm. it's stuff from the Herald Sun. <laughs> uh, <laughs> published in the, one of the number one journals in the world, is that the effectiveness of ketamine when administered to the mice by women is almost negligible, whereas when it's administered by men, it has an antidepressive impact. Now, this has significant downflow effects, I imagine. Yes, and you think, well, why on earth would that be? Now, as it turns out, what they've determined is that there is a particular chemical in the hippocampus and it's called corticotropin um, releasing factor, CRF, Mm -hmm. that uh, essentially is important for this to work. And when us guys handle these mice, it's kind of terrorising and this chemical is released and so the ketamine works better. Yeah. Now, of course... We're looking at ketamine as a way to treat, you know, really heavy depression that doesn't move. And it's look, I've I've seen this in a family member. Um, I've seen what this looks like, and it's really effective. It can it can be transformational in some cases. Uh, but of course, it's new. You know, it's used in that manner. But it's you know a lot, a lot of investigation going on. But of course, you don't want to have to traumatize an individual for it to work. For it to work, <laughs> yeah. right? This seems a bit counterproductive. However, what you could do is mimic the release of this chemical in the body, oh. so that when it is used, it is then more effective. Sure. So I think it's it's an interesting piece of research mm. that's mm. come out of, as I say, uh, University of Maryland researchers, and indicating you know just when you do the when you really do the basic research, yeah. when you look at the basics of it, you look at the biochemistry, and you look at these behavioural changes. And you accept the fact that the way in which you know men and women interact in these environments and that mm. how we're perceived is different, yeah. um, and not yeah. just by each other but by animals as well. And in this case, it has changed the way in which this uh, medication might be used in the future. Mm. I, I, th- I just found that fascinating that um, you know us uh, scary males with these mice um, makes this drug work better for them, which is yeah. just really – I mean, it sounds a bit counterintuitive when you first think about it, but, but the brain needs to be doing something. And the brain is fundamentally order, yeah. a, well, an electrical and biochemical – Machine, yeah. yeah. So yeah, it yeah. needs to be doing something for this to function mm. well. Mm. So anyway, uh, Dr. Lawrence sent that through to me this morning, Very nice. Very nice. Um, which I mm. thought might be interesting for people here. So mm. um, over to you, Chris. Uh, thanks, mate. Look, I don't even know when this was or where it was, in fact, but many, many, many years ago when I was a kid, I think one of my older sisters stumbled upon this, you know, it might have been in a textbook or something, this definition of or the description of mammals. Oh, yeah. And one of the things it said was that all mammals have a fur or hair covering. Now, since that time... What about me? <laughs> Most mammals. Okay. But, but, but that it's, um, my memories have said all mammals have a fur hair covering. And I remember yeah, yeah, okay. it just became a funny phrase. We still talk about it sometimes. We'll talk about the dog, you know. Oh, it's a mammal because it has a fur or hair covering. It's a phrase we've hung yeah. on to. Yeah. But, of course, yeah, do they all? Yeah. For example, and this is where my brain went to, again, a long time ago, what about whales? Yeah, dolphins. Mammals. Yeah, hello. Yeah. Well, it turns out that... Um, are they furry? Well, the thing is, because they're in the water, the benefit of fur as an insulating layer is less important. They have blubber. Right. Okay, right. They don't need that as much. But it turns out that whales, many whales, still do have hair. Uh, now, and I'm not being, I'm not, you know, being clever here, although maybe I am. Um, baleen whales right. uh, have, you know, those huge filter feeder yeah, things, yep. which yep. are made of the same stuff that they're essentially hair. So okay. they, in fact, not only have here, they need it to survive. They filter right, yeah. you know, water to Krill, get food. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Krill, et cetera, yes. Um, but they also have hairs along their jawline, quite fine, and not very many, between 30 and 100 hairs. 
No one really knows why they're there. Like a goatee. Yeah, they just sort of run their cheekies there. So whis- where whiskers would be, if you okay. like, which makes yep. the set even yep. cuter. Okay. Um, there are some theories that say around, around a hair follicle, there's a lot of nerves. So one theory is that they are there for sensing something. But again, no one really knows what they're sensing. It yeah. may be they're sensing prey or the nature of poten- potential prey. Uh, it may be that they're picking up turbulence in the water, currents or something of that right. sort. They yep. move around a bit um, in much the same way as the, uh, as the hairs in your inner ear move around in fluid to detect you know, right. orientation. So yep. maybe that's part of it. Um, there's also some suggestion that they may have some role in social interaction between cows and calves, for example, or perhaps during mating. Um, it's only 30 hairs, so you've got to know what you're doing. Uh, but, you know, I don't know. Uh, yeah. And you're a big, you're a big animal <laughs> relative to the size of those hairs. I feel like it's, one of the, it's like second base. Uh, you know, yeah. Yeah, you touch my hairs. Um, I mean, if you said to me that, that these <laughs> whales could fit through a gap like a cat does yeah. that is very close to their own width to within a few millimetres. With the hairs? With the hairs, I'd say, wow. That is a test I want to see done. Because cats do that. You know, that's yeah. they, I think. Is that, a, is that a myth? I think that's Hang real. on, uh, turn your mic on. Is that, is that a myth, Liv? I think that's real. I think that's real, that cats Sounds can legit. determine whether or not they'll fit by their whiskers? Uh, it does make sense. They can certainly sense the world around them. Yeah, well, they, they, they do something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Whiskers do something. They do something. <laughs> That's confirmed by Aunt Sunny Coco. Um, uh, interestingly, toothed whales, uh, uh, this is this is just blew my mind, they have hair, but not most of them don't have hair after they're born. They have it before they're born. Oh, okay. So and in then utero, they they're hairy in utero, then they lose it, uh, and then they come out naked. Um, except, of course, for the Amazon River dolphin, which retains hair on its beak because it hangs out in really muddy, murky water where you can't see very far, so it's very beneficial uh, to be able to sense the ground and the water and things right. in it. Yeah, because, so, yeah, so, yes, whales, many of them do still have hair, which brings us, of course, to humans. Uh, we don't have a lot of hair. Uh, and that that we do have... <laughs> Why you look at me when you said that? <laughs> you're right in front of me. You're yeah. right... It's just I'm like chance. a dolphin, people. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe um, dolphins are cute, uh, and what we do have, and this is—I'm not trying to, you know, uh, twist the knife here—but what hair we do have tends to be isolated to our heads. <laughs> You're really twisting, or a few but... other very small isolated parts of the body, yeah. um, smaller in some people than others, of course. Uh, and you know, we don't have a lot of hair, even compared to other primates, where not all that hairless. And so mm. the question is, why is this the case? Why have we got rid of all this hair? That we, you know, evolutionary speaking, you would think we would have had much more of it. What was the advantage? And there's a few theories behind this. Um, But basically, it all ties together with us getting out of the trees, getting on our hind feet, standing up and doing stuff, like getting around out of the, uh, on the the ground. And one of the, the, uh, one of the challenges that brings is that you're, there's a lot of aerobic exercise involved that you get hot. Yeah, and you can't take your hair off. You can't take your hair off easily, especially consider where we were. We're talking about getting out in the middle of the African savannah. Right. It's warm, and you're doing stuff. So we actually have sacrificed a lot of hairs for sweat glands. Right. So rather than trapping the heat in, we're actually lose that insulation layer we're doing the opposite we're cooling ourselves down with a layer of perspiration so that's you know that makes a lot of sense evolutionarily speaking if that makes sense um the other advantage of course having less hair and especially having isolated hair places on your body is that it removes uh, a lot of the pressure of uh that you get from like ticks and insects and parasites and stuff it's like you don't have as much of the of an environment for them mm, yeah and yep. it's you know where to look it's, it's like you're not wandering around your whole body you've only got you know three or four places to look and you sorted them out so there's an advantage to reducing parasitic uh, impact and disease, etc., that comes with that. So here's a really interesting question. Human hair is extraordinarily diverse in its colours, mm-hmm. um, uh, unusually so in the mammalian world, um, but also in its curliness. Right. But this is an area of tricky science, not just the trickiness of the physics of this, um, and essentially I'll, I'll get to that, but it's not too much of that, but it's also the act of studying it is tricky because, of course, curly hair or curliness of hair is something that is associated with particular cultures, particular ethnicities, and that makes it scary hmm. to researchers. The idea of going, oh, yes, I'm going to analyse and measure this, it's very hard to draw the line between that and there's going to be a judgment or there's going to be something beyond just the facts and the figures of this. Right, yeah. Um, so there's very little, very little work done in that area. So the curliness of hair, as it happens, is basically to do with... Um, Hair curls away from one side of a follicle and towards the other when it's more curly. And there's two ways this can happen. One is you have more cells on one side, so you have a denser cell packet around Mm. the follicle. The Mm. other is you have longer cells, um, which means that you stretch away. And it's unclear if 
either or both of these might be having an impact, but certainly the greater range of cell density you have in the follicle and the hair shaft, the more curly the hair is. That's just that's just. Physics. I would have thought there are some curly hairs in the body that are culturally independent. Um, I would have thought so too. I haven't looked very closely at uh, at lots of bodies. <laughs> you know, <just> studies. <laughs> I could be wrong. Um, but yeah, isn't that interesting? Yeah. That it's one of the great unifiers. I yeah. think that's a reasonable body it's, hair. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the hair part that I always found fascinating is why, um, as you grow older, and I'm, you know, this is, look, this is a little personal, but you, you start sure. to grow hair in places where you know you don't need it. And, it never, and it never used to grow. Oh, right. Yes, I understand what you mean. Yes. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, what is that about? And, and it's funny how sometimes it's, it, it's, it feels good. Like, remember, you know, growing facial, I'm like, hey. Yeah, you know, great. I am man. Chest hair. Hello. <laughs> Hello. Absolutely. But there are, there are other parts of the body. It's the ears and stuff. It's, it's, it's like, like what, come why, on, no. why? Why? To, to what end? You know, uh, yeah. As, yeah. the bugs aren't getting in. No, I'm okay. I don't need I've this. managed to this point. Yeah, I'm, I'm okay. Yeah. Anyway, so the interesting thing is that uh, so there's a, there's a researcher called uh, Tina Lasisi who I think only last year I think finished a PhD in this because she got really inspired about curly hair and and you know where it comes from, you know where where it fits evolutionarily speaking, um, and she found when she was you know lit reviewing basically there was like only a handful of studies of anyone right. trying to understand the evolution of this and where it lands, so it became a PhD which she finished I think last year, and intriguingly she actually connects it to other things. She was makes the point that it was only in sort of you know it was early this century. When the term melanin landed in the diary, right. no one talked yeah. about that for the yep. same reason. It's scary. You start talking about how much melanin someone has in their skin, mm. and suddenly you have all kinds of difficult. Um, you have rocky waters to deal with in terms of um, of racial stereotyping, etc. Um, and she said, "But we understand this is the thing, and melanin makes total sense. There's more of it in people who were exposed to the sun mm. because it protects you." Yep. She has a very similar theory about curly hair because really? if you think about it, if you've got tight curly hair, it doesn't fall down across your body that you've just evolved to get hairless right it's not in the way it's up on top of your head furthermore up on top of your head it forms sort of a sort of a lofty um an airy structure so it's on top of your head the air still moves through it yep so it's cool-ish so it's but optim- also, optimized but it protects you from uv as well yeah. so essentially you've got these beings that have suddenly got rid of all their body hair got on their hind feet walking out in the sun need to protect their skin and their heads and curly hair is one way of doing it mm. there you go hair Excellent. Well, I still feel like a dolphin, uh, you know, and that's obviously a flaw that I have. And, you know, but hey, I'm saving a lot of them razors. I will always think of you as a flipper. <laughs> there's, a, there's a scene I don't think anyone needs in their head. Chris KP, thank you very much. Good to chat to you Likewise. again. A big thank you to all of our guests for today. Uh, Liv, good to have you in the studio. It's nice to be in. It's great to have you in doing our Twitter feed for us, folks. If you don't know, Liv's been doing our Twitter feed since she was like, I don't know, two. Uh, it's been a while. Uh, it's been going well. I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere. We will chat to you again next week, and we're going to hand over now to the team from Eat It. Have a fantastic Sunday, and we will see you again next week. Triple R. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein A Go-Go, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein A Go-Go's Twitter account or Facebook page.